Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Presidential pressures, Donald Trump facing an impeachment inquiry over Ukraine as that country's leader addresses the UN this hour. Parliamentary powers, MPs are back. Boris Johnson returns to London and Brexit, who knows? And stubbed out, Altria and Philip Morris abandon merger talks amid the broader vaping crisis. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move this Wednesday. Two big battles taking our focus. As I mentioned there in the UK, Parliament now back in session. An embattled Prime Minister Boris Johnson is there too. Meanwhile, here in the United States, the House begins a formal impeachment inquiry central to that decision. We await the release of a transcript of that July phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine. Now, the Ukrainian president is set to speak any moment at the UN General Assembly, and we will bring that to you live the moment it begins. For now, though, wow, that's the backdrop for investors today. Complex, also uncertain. Now, U.S. stocks set to open uh, a touch lower, as you can see, following Tuesday's pullback. The Nasdaq, the tech-heavy index, losing some 1.5% yesterday. It's now, in fact, just in the red for the third quarter. Smaller cap stocks, meanwhile, here in the United States, have lost almost 3% in just the last five sessions. Now, amid the broader noise, we always bring it back to the fundamentals too. We keep reiterating that the US consumer is key for economic growth here in the outlook, particularly in the United States. Well, I can tell you data showed yesterday that consumer confidence took a pretty steep hit in September amid the escalating trade tariff threats. Trade continues to be a key driver of broader confidence too. And with President Trump talking pretty tough on China at the UN yesterday. Hard to see progress being made in the trade talks next next month. Now, sentiment today, I think perhaps reflecting that, the bottom line here is that domestic US policy and its implications for the world remain well and truly front and centre. And now we've got an impeachment inquiry to consider too. That's where we're going to kick off the drivers. Let's get to it. The probe in the US House triggered by claims that President Trump pressured the Ukrainian president to open an investigation into the son of Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that investigation on Tuesday with these words. The actions of the Trump presidency revealed dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. Joe Johns joining us now from Washington. Joe, great to have you with us. All the concerns there that the House Speaker mentioned, I have to say, they've been there for many, many months, if not years, since President Trump took over. Why now? What changed? And as far as the transcript released today, what more is that likely to tell us? That's a good question. And the question is whether the transcript that has been referred to is going to be a transcript in fact. Of course, uh, we are told here at the White House to expect uh, something more akin to notes of a conversation between the president of the United States 
and the president of Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, and we're told it might not be a, a transcription, if you will, in the traditional sense. So uh, the bottom line, I think, on all of this, of course, is the question of whether the president in that telephone call from the 25th of July this year uh, essentially tried to leverage his control over $400 million or so of military aid for Ukraine in exchange for getting foreign help against a potential foe in the next election in 2020. Uh, that would be military aid, obviously, for Ukraine that was held up for a period of time. Uh, we know this White House has Joe, been Joe, I'm going to interrupt in you Ukraine. there, actually, yes. because the man in question, the Ukrainian president here, actually just set to speak at the UN. Let's listen into what he has to say. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Ukraine, I congratulate you, Mr. President, on the election as the president of the 74th session of the UN General Assembly. Ukraine supports the implementation of all ambition priorities agenda of this assembly. Let's be candid. All present here have different interests, views, values and issues. But there is a thing which unites us all. Each and every of you, ladies and gentlemen, had that very first statement delivered from this rostrum. Please recall the feelings you experienced at that very moment. Every one of you, reputable and respectable today, used to be a starting, but I'm confident, honest politician. And at that time, the cocktail of pragmatism, skepticism and tough geopolitical reality had not yet extinguished you eagerness, romanticism and steadfast faith in the ability to change the world for the better. Please recall how important it was then to convey the problems and troubles of your own country and your own nation. How important it was to then to get your message across and be listened to I'm experiencing the same feelings today. I'm going to tell you a story. The story of a person for whom being listened to became the sense of his life. That's because that man had divine voice. He was called the best baritone and countertenor of the world. His voice sounded in the Carnegie Hall here in New York, in Notre Dame de Paris, in Covent Garden Opera in London and Grand Opera in Paris. Every one of you could have listened to his incredible singing, but unfortunately there is a thing which will not you allow to do so again. It looks like this, and I will show you, that is. 12.7 millimeters, which not only ended his career, it stopped his life.
By the way, it costs only 10 US dollars. And this is, unfortunately, the price of a human life on our planet. There are thousands of such stories. There are millions of such bullets. Welcome to the 21st century, a century of opportunities, where there is an opportunity to be killed instead to be listened to and be heard. Who I just told you about was Vasil Slipak. He was Ukrainian and soloist of the Paris National Opera, who was murdered in Donbas defending Ukraine against the Russian aggression. The war in Donbas has been lasting for five years. Five years have passed since Russia occupied Ukrainian Crimea. Nowadays, when there are thousands of pages of international law and hundreds of international organizations tasked to protect it, our, our country with arms and hands losing its citizens has been defending in sovereignty and territorial integrity. More than 13,000 dead, 30,000 wounded, one and a half million people forced to leave their homes. These numbers, awful numbers, are reported here annually with only one correction, a small one. They keep growing each year. And in the war, recovering all occupied Ukrainian territories and restoring peace are my primary objectives, but not at the cost of the lives of our citizens, freedom or right of Ukraine to make its own choice. That is why we need wide international support. I do realize every country present here has its own challenges to tackle, and the problems of others should not worry you more than your own ones. But I understand this is life, but in the modern world where we live, there is no more somebody else's war. And none of you will feel safe until Russia is waging war against Ukraine in the center of Europe. And a thought that all of this has nothing to do with you or will never touch your interests could be fatal. We cannot think globally while turning a blind eye to small things or as someone may believe to trifles, because that is how the foundation of two world wars was laid down, and as a result, millions of human lives have become the price for negligence, silence, inaction, or unwillingness to relinquish own ambitions. Two, the horrible lessons of history begin to fade away from mankind's memory. Ukraine remembers them, and Ukraine has always demonstrated to the world its readiness to ensure peace in a civilized manner, and we made particular steps towards international security. For example, 
when it abandoned nuclear arsenal, which at that time exceeded nuclear capacities of the United Kingdom, France and China combined. Because, uh, you know, we seem to believe in a collective strive to build a new world, a world where your thoughts are heard and reckoned with, regardless whether you possess nuclear weapons or not. A world where you are respected for your deeds and not for having nuclear warheads. At the end of the day, in this new world, my country has lost a part of its territory and keeps losing its citizens almost every single day. That is why, as of today, Ukraine has earned the right to speak about the necessity to reconsider and review the still-existent but trampled rules. Certainly, we do not call into question the credibility of the international institutions, and in particular the United Nations, but we have to recognize that the existing system is not perfect. It has begun to unravel, to malfunction, therefore it needs to be revised. The United Nations organization, yes, but let's be candid. Are the nations indeed united nowadays? And if they are, what makes them united? Are these disasters, calamities or wars? From this highest world rostrum, we always hear the calls for fair changes, righteous promises, new initiatives. It is high time to ensure that those calls are backed up by deeds. Because in a modern world where the human life costs just $10, the words are depreciated. Let's remember what was the goal in 1945 when the United Nations were established. It was to maintain and strengthen peace and international security. But what should we do when the very fundamentals of international security are endangered? Since each war today, in Ukraine, Syria, Libya, Yemen, or anywhere else in the world, no matter the number of casualties, is the biggest threat to the civilization as a whole. That's because in 2019, the human beings, homo sapiens, still prefer to solve conflicts by murdering their own kind. We're going to leave the Ukrainian the president speaking there. A poignant speech from him, I think, pushing back against broader violence in the world and the need to understand and consider the cost of life. He compared it to a 12-millimeter bullet costing just $10. But he also illustrated the challenges Ukraine faces amid a broader battle with Russia here. And the way he told that story was via an opera singer, a Ukrainian opera singer who came to Ukraine in 2014, made the decision to join the army and was killed in 2016. A pretty poignant story here. I want to bring back Joe Johns, who's still with us, and we're also joined by our senior diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, Robertson here too. Nick, I want to come to you. Clearly, he wasn't going to address the broader questions that we have here in the United States right now about whether the US president 
put pressure on him by withholding aid in order to dig dirt on, on Joe Biden and his son here. But I think he did underscore the need for that aid and the challenge that the country faces and continues to face. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, he talked about the United Nations and the fundamental goal of the United Nations and how the international institutions, uh, the, although uh, still in good order, do need adjusting uh, and do need to be able to address the current concerns, not just in uh, Ukraine, but obviously Syria, uh, Yemen and other countries. Um, I, I rode the elevator this morning uh, in my hotel with the Ukrainian president. Uh, he seemed quite pensive uh, and apprehensive. Uh, you know, I asked him if he was enjoying New York. Um, he told me he was, and uh, his, I think it was very interesting that one of his entourage quipped that actually he was, uh, the, the hotel was sort of pretty much what they were enjoying. And I got the impression at that moment, and he didn't, certainly didn't want to discuss uh, the, his phone conversations with President Trump with me. I got the impression at that moment that he feels kind of sort of a bit embattled here, that he's caught up in something much bigger than he expected. Remembering this is a, this is a president who doesn't come from a deep political background. But the message uh, that he is giving here this morning, the first speech at the UNGA today, is that one, that uh, Ukraine does need that international support. They do need the help. The, the, uh, the UN and other bodies do need to adjust themselves, if you will, for, for, the, for the modern era. Um, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a leader here who finds himself a player embroiled in a far bigger issue, huge domestic issue here in the United States. And I got that sense from him this morning that, uh, that he will be happy, happier when he gets back home and is not surrounded by the persistent questions of, did President Trump pressure you? And um, that does seem to be weighing on him at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, he's well and truly in the eye of the storm here. Joe, come back in here because uh, to Nick's point there, that the big questions that are being asked of both presidents, I think. To your point, the question is when we get this transcript later on this morning of the phone call back in July between these presidents, is it the actual transcript? Can we believe it ultimately? And I think perhaps the more important question here to ask is, do we ultimately get details in the coming days of the whistleblower involved in here and the whistleblower's complaints to US Congress here? Well, the first thing I have to say about that is that we're being told here at the White House to keep expectations low about how revealing this document that is expected to be released today is going to be. That would be the document that's being referred to as a transcript or notes of that July 25th conversation. The president himself has said that everything he said on that call was appropriate. Uh, the question, of course, will be up on Capitol Hill as to whether it was, in fact, appropriate. Also, whether it was complete. So there's a bigger push, of course, to get a hold of the whistleblower complaint that has so far been kept secret uh, by the administration. This is something that members of Congress on the Democratic side in the House have been pushing to get and apparently was uh, part of the reason why the Speaker of the House found it necessary to uh, pursue this formal impeachment inquiry up there. So a lot of moving pieces on this. And uh, it's also important to say, I don't know if you've said it already, but just in a matter of hours, President Trump is expected to meet the Ukrainian president there at the United Nations and have a, a talk on the sidelines. So that, too, will be quite interesting. And the question, once again, will be, 
how much of that conversation will the public be privy to. Uh, so you're right, uh, Zelensky has a lot on his plate right now and surely will be looking forward to getting back to more familiar environments. Absolutely. And the two presidents, of course, meeting at a reception last night, too. And of course, that's exactly where the cameras were waiting to pick up this moment. The body language, of course, any glimpse of uh, the relationship between these two men is going to be well and truly a focus today ahead of that meeting later on. Joe John's fantastic to have you with us. And Nick Robertson. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on this story. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up on First Move, a new face but familiar problems. The IMF confirms its next chief at noon today. We ask the man on his way out, the acting managing director, what's on the to-do list. And later on in the show, big moves in big tobacco, a vaping crackdown leaving a career and a merger in ashes. Stay with us. We're back in two. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S.-China standoff, just one of the challenges lying in wait for the Bulgarian economist Kristalina Georgieva. The International Monetary Fund is expected to confirm her as its next managing director in a few hours' time. Her appointment comes at a pretty testing time for the world's lender of last resort, a global economic slowdown, Brexit, fractious domestic policies all around the world, just some of the issues in her inbox. Joining us now, David Lipton, the Acting Managing Director at the International Monetary Fund. So fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Let's start there. What direction, what fresh direction or approach is going to come as a result of new leadership here? Well, it's a big time for us, a time of transition with Christine Lagarde having departed and uh, Kristalina Georgieva coming. I think the uh, immediate challenge is to deal with the uh, risk to global growth in the short run and then to think about promoting growth in the longer run. I I expect her to be a growth-oriented managing director and to put her mind to those tasks. And what that will mean is promoting growth, dealing with the risks, and uh, trying to get policymakers to address these issues. It makes perfect sense. Trade and trade policy front and foremost here. What does the IMF think at this stage? Because you've been warning about the risks to the global outlook here as a result of the trade tensions that we're seeing. Is it the direct impact of tariffs here that has the the more damaging effect? Or is it simply the effect the noise has on on confidence, on investment here? Well, there are both. But our assessment uh, so far is that the tariffs themselves have not impacted growth directly so much. They've had an effect in the United States, uh, in China. Um, In fact, they help some countries because there is diversion of trade. When the two countries uh, trade less with each other, they look for other uh, places to trade with. But as you suggested, the bigger impact is uncertainty. And there's uncertainty piled on uncertainty. There's uncertainty about uh, the resolution of trade difficulties, uh, discussions about uh, technology. Uh, There's also Brexit. Uh, There are geopolitical issues. And so we we see a world in which uncertainty is uh, retarding trade and investment. We see uh, business sentiment suffering substantially uh, at the time when consumer sentiment and service sector growth is very strong. So, so far the growth of the economy continues. Our baseline is for continued growth, but uh, the uh, downside risks, which I think do 
come mainly from this set of uncertainties is uh, right now the thing to focus on. Is it too early to be talking about a global recession here? Well, I think uh, it makes sense to consider the range of possibilities. As I said, our baseline uh, is for continued growth, although we, we have to say the pattern of growth over the last few years is a gradual but steady decline in global growth. In 2017, global growth was around 4%, and now it's closer to uh, 3%. Uh, so it's, uh, there is a need to uh, address that uh, slowdown and to a- attend to the risks that could tip the world into recession to try to make sure that it doesn't happen. I think the world's not as well armed to deal with recession because so many uh, policy instruments have been used so extensively since the global financial crisis. So it makes it all the more important to uh, try to address risks, uh, not uh, have unforced errors, keep the economy uh, growing. The U.S. president would like to see interest rates in the United States lower. He's also talked about the prospect of negative interest rates. It's not worked out so well in Europe or in other places. What would negative interest rates mean for the United States in, in the IMF's view here? A bad thing or a useful let thing? Me, yeah. Let me uh, address the, the general point. Monetary policymakers have to tailor their policies to the situation their countries face. And that means trying to achieve their goals, in some cases uh, in Europe, the inflation rate in the United States, the inflation rate in maintaining uh, employment. And if, uh, in, if uh, uh, the economies are slowing, if inflation is falling low, it makes sense for central banks to provide some support. And they've been doing that. As a, as a consequence, we've had low interest rates, and I think the markets expect a continuation of low interest rates uh, for a long time. Getting it exactly right is not easy, and Fed watchers uh, can uh, critique every uh, move and every uh, uh, pronouncement. But we think in general that monetary policymakers in advanced economies are right to be providing support. And that's, you know, while, while low interest rates have consequences for banks, uh, for um, the risk taking in, uh, in uh, capital markets, uh, we think that the most important role for monetary policymakers is to try to keep the economy on an even keel. It makes sense to address the uh, side effects of low interest rates uh, through other policies uh, by trying to use uh, macroprudential policies to make sure that uh, risks aren't uh, being taken Mm. that shouldn't be taken. I'll take that as it's a bad thing for savers. (laughs) Negative interest rates aren't good things. Um, Yes. Let's talk Brexit. It's an ongoing battle. It's tough to see even now how it plays out. Has your assessment of the risks here and the economic risks changed at all? You know, we've been concerned about the uncertainties coming from Brexit since uh, this project began. I can't say we're any uh, better at trying to figure out which of the various outcomes is likely to happen. The people in the UK who follow this very closely would probably admit even today that they're not sure uh, what the outcome will be. The only constant in this entire process has been uncertainty, and that uncertainty continues and is perhaps as great as it has been. That's neither good for uh, 
the UK in terms of uh, business uh, sentiment and spending there, uh, nor for Europe and the world. So it would make sense uh, for this, uh, uh, for the, the the UK and uh, Europe to work as they as best they can to try to come up with the best Brexit possible, um, and to get uh, the the issue decided and try and get beyond this uncertainty. Unfortunately, common sense is in short supply, it seems, on a global basis at times. So great to have you on, David Lipton, the Acting Managing Director at the IMF. Coming up, the market open. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chantley, live from New York, where the opening bell has rung on Wall Street. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing in terms of early price action. Well, an about turn, higher by some three-tenths of 1% for the Dow. Bouncing back a little here after yesterday's almost 1% pullback for the S&P 500. Not bad, considering all the political noise out there at this moment. Ten-year Treasury yields firming up a little bit here as well after falling for seven straight sessions. We also saw a bit of a pullback yesterday too following that disappointing consumer confidence data that I mentioned earlier on in the show. Right now sitting to 1.66% there for the US 10-year. What about Europe? Well, red across the board as you can see there. The uh, Zetradax over in Germany down nine-tenths of 1%. A tough session for Asia too. The Hang Seng losing some 1.3% to uh, the underperformer there over in Hong Kong. President Trump and Japanese Prime Minister Abe meeting today to discuss a trade deal at the UN. Japanese sources say the two sides have already reached a final but limited agreement. The status of proposed U.S. tariffs on Japanese autos also uncertain, and that's critical here too, so we'll watch for that as well. But also investors keeping at least half an eye on What's going on in D.C. and where the Democrats' formal impeachment inquiry into President Trump will lead here? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying the president betrayed his oath of office when he spoke to the Ukrainian president. Let's get more on this with Doug Hay. He's Republican strategist and former communications director for the Republican National Committee. He worked in Congress during the impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1998. Doug, fantastic to have you with us. What changed here for Nancy Pelosi? She's been resisting calls for an impeachment inquiry for, what, over a year here. Mm -hmm. What changed and and where does this lead ultimately if the Senate isn't going to agree with an impeachment call here? Yeah, what's changed, Julia, is that a number of House Democrats have come out in the past week um, and even as as recently as yesterday in a flood of Democrats um, saying that they now support uh, impeachment, the impeachment process. And it's not just um, Democrats from reliably Democratic districts. Some of these are for, are, are for more moderate or more swing districts. So this has been a bottom-up process um, for, for House Democrats that have really forced the Speaker's hand, but also creates, I think, a real difficult problem for, for the Democrats. They've moved this far before we've seen what's in the transcript um, of the call with the Ukrainian president, before um, we've had an opportunity for the House and Senate intel committees to meet with the whistleblower as they're expected to do. A lot of this was a reaction to uh, a presumption that Donald Trump was going to stonewall on this. And if Trump doesn't stonewall on this, it may take a bit of their ammunition away. One House Democrat yesterday, a freshman, um, said, uh, Elisa, Alyssa um, Skolnick said, if we're, going to have a, if we're going to stay on message, you have to tell us what are, and I won't use her exact terminology, but what that message is going to be. House Democrats are not completely unified on what their process is moving forward, and that's a challenge for them. I mean, you make a great point. Wait for the smoking gun before you 
before you take this approach, quite frankly, and we don't have that and we'll have to wait and see what comes, both of the whistleblower's account, but also this transcript and whether or not it's believable here. To your point, does this just become what actually Nancy Pelosi feared? And it's just a lot of noise and, and sucks all the energy when actually the Democrats should be focusing on 2020, because ultimately, if you want to get President Trump out of the White House, you have to win 2020. And that's the only way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, logistically for House Democrats, they have a problem. It's going to be very hard for them to to pass any kind of meaningful bipartisan legislation. By the way, they have a a two week recess coming up that presumably will be canceled if they're going to uh, launch into um, an impeachment investigation. And if they don't cancel the recess, that certainly sends a wrong message. But if you're Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, whichever Democrat it may be, it's going to be a lot harder for you to focus on health care, jobs, the economy, whatever the real issues that are driving the country right now, because impeachment is going to be the dominant topic of conversation now uh, for not just the next few weeks, but presumably the next uh, a year, year and a half. What about for the Republicans here? Because they're not going to let this go. The president, even yesterday at the U.N., when he was asked, he reiterated, look, he wants the questions about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. He wants those answered. So he was he was justifying whatever happened here on this call and the broader questions about what happened between the two presidents as, look, we want information about Joe Biden. Is that going to be a problem for Joe Biden at a time when Elizabeth Warren's also gaining momentum and and ground against him here in the polls, at least? You know, it's a problem that comes with an opportunity as well. It's a problem because there are very real questions that will need to be answered and we'll get those answers. If those are bad answers, that's going to be very bad for the Biden campaign. But it also, I think, sets up an opportunity for Joe Biden to take on Donald Trump directly. As he's sagging in the polls a little bit towards Elizabeth Warren, there's no better foil for Joe Biden to have than Donald Trump. If the information uh, or the evidence about his son Hunter isn't damning, then it's a real opportunity for, for Joe Biden to drive a message home that will resound with Democrats. Yeah, it's not me, it's you. Doug Hay, thank you for joining us on that story. And of course, we await the first step here, which is the release of that transcript, the phone call, of course, in July between the two presidents. All right, Doug, thanks again. All right, coming up on First Move, ordered back to work. The UK Parliament reconvenes and Boris Johnson gears up to face the wrath of his colleagues and others. Stay with CNN. That's coming up. to first move and to the UK now, where Parliament is back in session. Prime Minister Boris Johnson also set to address lawmakers later this morning after cutting short his trip to the UN General Assembly in New York. It follows the UK Supreme Court ruling that his suspension of Parliament was unlawful. Melissa Bell joins us now. Melissa, some mere culpas, I think, going on in Parliament earlier on this morning. The question is, how does Boris Johnson handle it now? And what does this mean for Brexit? That's right. How he will get out of this deadlock when he rises to speak to MPs. Now, we had a little glimpse of how the government is reacting, taking uh, that uh, Supreme Court verdict uh, through the exchanges that took place earlier during urgent questions. The attorney general was up for the government. This is what he had to say about that extraordinary verdict uh, that brought the MPs back here today. I accept we lost. We got it wrong on the judgment of the Supreme Court. But it was a respectable view on the law to take.
and that uh, view was taken by four out of the seven judges who opined up to the point of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. Now, so far, so good. But what Geoffrey Cox went on to do in an exchange a little bit later during those urgent questions was let slip the fact that the government clearly intends to table a motion trying to call another general election. Now, it's important to note, Julia, that it has failed twice to get the majority that it needs, the two-thirds majority that it needs to get a general election uh, through. Other parties simply do not want one held now because that 31st of October deadline is looming. And the fear is uh, that anything like an election would simply take us past that that date and see the UK crash out of the EU almost inadvertently. That's why they have opposed it so far. What we understand is that the government may try and table some kind of motion uh, that would require a smaller majority by fixing a date. But even then, you need 25 days, Julia, between the moment when uh, uh, the general election is called and when it is held. Uh, and that would simply take us too close to that deadline. So I think almost certainly you're going to see that majority of MPs, not only the opposition MPs, but the rebel Tory MPs who are worried about the UK crashing out of the EU, uh, stopping that from happening and trying not to give the government uh, the simple majority in this case that it would need. On the other hand, what you're likely to see from the opposition parties, and we're hearing some noises about this here at Westminster, uh, you remember that just before Parliament was suspended, they had managed to get a bill through to create this law that essentially forces Boris Johnson to ask for an extension from the European Union on October 19th, should no deal be found with European partners. What we're hearing is that the Liberal Democrats may be pushing for legislation to try and force him to seek that extension sooner than the 19th of October. Yeah, it makes that EU summit on the 17th and the 18th of October absolutely pivotal. And there is a deal there, of course. Theresa May still waving her on. Wow. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. All right. I'm going to take a break here, but uh, coming up after this, up in smoke. How a clampdown on vaping stubbed out what would have been one of the biggest mergers of the year. Stay with us. We're back in two. Welcome back to First Move. Should we take a look at some global movers this morning? Let's do that. Shares of Nike are rallying. The sports apparel giant posting stronger than expected Q1 earnings and revenue sales in China. Wow. Soaring 27%. Its shares are hitting record highs in early trading. What about Netflix? They're also higher by some seven-tenths of 1%. The company, once high-flying stock, fell into red for 2019 yesterday. Shares are now down some 4% year-to-date. The competition steepening here. Wall Street continues to worry that new streaming services will eat into Netflix profits. Shares of eBay also down just over 1%. The company's president and CEO is stepping down after around four years at the helm. Now, in the middle of a storm of negative publicity over vaping, e-cigarette maker Juul has announced its CEO is going to be replaced by a former Altria executive. At the same time, Altria and Philip Morris International calling off talks on a possible merger. Shares in both companies are higher, which tells you something here. Paul and Monica joins us now. Paul, give us the details on this. And I think we also have to make the point that Altria has a huge stake in Juul too. So there's bigger implications here than just a CEO change for the, uh, the e-cigarette maker here. Yeah, without question. I think that uh, you know, Altria's uh, CEO uh, stepping down, perhaps you could say being forced out by Altria, not a great sign. There are so many concerns right now about the uh, you know, controversy regarding whether or not vaping is any better for people than traditional tobacco cigarettes. 
And Altria has made a big bet to try and diversify with the Juul investment. And now all of a sudden you have to wonder if the value of that deal is going to go down significantly. And there had been hopes, Julia, that Altria was going to reunite with Philip Morris and have a combined global tobacco conglomerate that would bet more on e-cigarettes and other non-traditional products because of Philip Morris owning the ICOS system uh, for heating uh, tobacco. Now that deal is off, and I think investors have to be wondering, what is Altria's future going to look like? You know, they're going to try and maybe do more in vaping and have one of their own executives clean up maybe the mess at Juul, but there still are a lot of regulatory concerns. The Trump administration is cracking down on vaping, particularly some of those products that have been geared, some would say, more towards teens. And that's going to be, I think, an issue uh, you know, going forward. Can Altria, through diversification, wind up uh, you know, being better than just a slow growth, no growth business? Yeah, it's fascinating. I and mean, we talked about this before, profound uncertainty now about uh, e-cigarettes. And to your point, do they come back perhaps to these talks, but at different price points, given the sheer uncertainty and the evolving outlook here? Paula Monica, thank you so much for that update there. All right. Let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief, too. British authorities will repatriate another 16,000 people today following the collapse of tour operator Thomas Cook. The operation now in its third day. The Civil Aviation Authority sets its working, says it's working around the clock to bring customers back home. WeWork CEO stepping down, it comes as the office startup struggles to go public. Adam Newman's power at the company has been under scrutiny recently, with WeWork making governance changes to re-insure investors ahead of a future IPO. And finally, as we await transcripts of President Trump's phone call with Ukraine's leader, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert provided their version of events. Watch this. Hello, this is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Hello, this is the President. Congratulations on Chernobyl. Chernobyl is a horrible tragedy. Great ratings. What can I do for you, Mr. President? Give me some skirt. Go on Sleepy Joe. I don't think I can help with that. How would you like to wake up in the morning next to the head of a horse? Do you know, asking a foreign power to help you is an impeachable offense. To me, it's a dirty word, the word impeach. It's a dirty, filthy, disgusting word. Where do you stand and grab them by the pussy? I'm fine with it. Didn't you do the same thing with Russia, asking them for dirt on Hillary in the 2016 election? This is what I'm good at. Sorry, Mr. President. Ukraine is going into a tunnel. I have to go. My apologies for anyone who choked over their coffee there, but I did think it was worth it to illustrate a point. Brian Stelter <laughs> joins us now. Wow, Brian, I mean, we shouldn't laugh because this is an incredibly serious matter. But for me, the big question here is, can we believe what we get here when we get the release of the transcript? And I use inverted commas here of the phone call between the two presidents, because this is going to be key today. Yeah, And this White House has lost the benefit of the doubt a long time ago. Uh, President Trump uh, constantly contradicts himself, uh, lies to the public. And we have seen instances where this government has been pressured to falsify information, 
even including transcripts, because of the president's feelings and, uh, and, and personal uh, actions. So uh, we keep that in mind. We set that on the table as we await the release of these contemporaries, contemporaneous notes uh, that are going to come out any minute uh, involving the president's call with the Ukrainian leader. Uh, we have no reason to specifically believe that in this case, the information is going to be uh, uh, messed with or tweaked. But we do know there's been this pattern of lying and misleading uh, by the White House. I think we have to keep that in mind. Today, this kind of feels like the day Bill Barr came out and spun the Mueller report. The White House got out there. The administration got out there with a with their their view of the Mueller report weeks before the actual report was released. We might be seeing a repeat of that today, Julia. Yeah, and it's why the whistleblower's account to U.S. Congress is so key, too, and we need the details on that to counter this. But, Brian, to that exact point, the president was ready yesterday. He tweeted out a montage of, of suggestions, I think, making the point that the, the Democrats here are crazy, and it's just another witch hunt. Have the Democrats erred here, and is the president going to use this inquiry to his benefit? Well, look, Trump knows how to communicate with his audience, with his base, through his tweets, through repeating certain slogans. He knows how to get through to them. Now it's up to the Democrats to make their case to the American people. Will Democrats be on TV? Will they be holding hearings? Those are all open questions right now. When I'm yeah. looking at these contemporaneous notes, I'm interested in seeing what words Trump uses and doesn't use. Let's remember what Michael Cohen said, that President Trump speaks in code, like a mob boss. We will see if that's the kind of language used on this uh, so-called transcript. Yeah, let's see if we can decode that later. Brian Stelter, great. great job. Thank you so much for that. That's Thanks. it for the show. That release coming imminently, so stick around and watch CNN for that. For now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. And don't move a muscle. More next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.